Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Doctors of Running Virtual Roundtable, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and the science to the stuff that we are putting on our feet. Today's episode number 82, we have a very special episode lined up, and that's because we are interviewing two people, a dietitian and a nutritionist, and these two people, who I'm going to keep you in the dark a little bit, they do a great job introing them once they join the roundtable. Uh, they are specialists in their field in working with looking at how women's physiology and their unique physiology um, influences things like training, performance, recovery, nutrition, and hydration. And what I found just so valuable about this interview, I got to listen to it a few days ago, was just for myself as a man, but also looking at myself as a physical therapist, I'm interacting with women all the time. And the more that I can draw out differences of people's unique physiology and how that's going to influence how they respond to things can make me better at my job. It can make me a better running friend to women that I run with and not just trying to throw what works for me towards them. Uh, We can learn a lot about ourselves through this interview and I really hope that these people come back to dive a little bit deeper into what they are passionate about and what they have studied a lot and written about and contributed to research. Uh, It's been a joy to have them on and a real privilege. Before we go to that, we are going to do a subjective of the week. And this week, we're going to put it in the world of nutrition and hydration. And really, it's it's a really easy yes or no question. Do you use supplements for your nutrition or your hydration during, before, or after a run. And if you do, what are you using? If you don't, why don't you? Uh, and, and you're going to get to hear more from these guests as they go into their uh, the interview, and you're going to hear their thoughts on a lot of different products and, and what they recommend and why. But this is a great, great interview. I'm really excited to listen. So I'm going to kick it over to Andrea and Megan. Welcome to the Doctors of Running podcast roundtable. I'm Andrea Myers here with Megan Flynn. We've got two very special guests with us today, Celine Yeager and Jen Giles. We're so excited to have them here with us to talk about women's nutrition and training needs. So I'd like to introduce Celine and Jen. Celine is a top-selling professional health and fitness author. She's co-authored and written over a dozen books including Roar with Dr. Stacy Sims. And we're very excited that she's got a new book coming out in May called Next Level. It's about women going through the menopause transition and after specific topics for them regarding training, nutrition, health. Can't wait to get our hands on that book. Um, Celine is also a USA cycling coach. She's a personal trainer, a pro mountain bike racer, Um, I was fortunate to meet Selene at a gravel bike ride several years ago, and we're so honored to have her join us. Um, I'm going to let Megan introduce Jen now. All right, so we're also here with uh, Jennifer O'Donnell-Giles, who's a registered dietitian. Um, She's uh, a board-certified sports dietitian, speaker, writer, exercise physiologist, triathlon coach, the list goes on. Um, She's also a multiple Ironman finisher, um, she represented Team USA at the World Championships and is also an adjunct pro- professor at uh, Columbia University. Uh, and on top of all of that, she's an author of three books on nutrition um, and a faculty member of the My Sports RD uh, website. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jen. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. So we are going to dive into four main topics tonight. The first one is going to be on nutrition. Um, so Jen, this might be your, 
your uh, point of expertise for sure. Um, but again, starting with a general question of how much uh, carbs, protein, and fat in a daily diet for an athlete training at a high level. Like I know for me, reading through a lot of information, it's pretty surprising, specifically on the protein end, how much a female athlete needs when they're training at their peak. So Jen, if you'd like to add in any specifics or anything along the lines of a carb, protein, or fat um, allotment. Yeah, for sure. I mean, most of the recommendations really, especially with the athletes that I work with are individualized. So it's really going to depend on a person's physiology, a person's training load, you know, are they endurance or endurance training or their sprint training, or are they doing some, some kind of strength training um, and what they're actually training for, because it does change throughout the season. So there's some periodization that happens too. So it's not always going to be, you know, like 50, 30, 20 kind of breakdown. It's going to change depending on your activity. But to speak to protein a little bit, I love that you brought that up because we have realized in the last, you know, five, seven years that our protein needs, especially as female athletes, are a lot greater than we ever thought they were. So we really need to boost up our protein. And the best way to do that is really to increase protein content at every meal. So it's not just, okay, put an extra scoop of protein powder in your morning smoothie. It's really consistently getting uh decent amount. And that's going to vary between the individual of protein at each meal and snack throughout the day so that your protein load throughout your day, whenever you're training, whether you're a morning exerciser, evening exerciser, or lunchtime, that your body is getting enough protein before exercise and after, after exercise for recovery. So it just, in its consistency is really the name of the game when it comes to protein. So an increase in the quantity and an increase in the consistent amount that you get throughout um, fat and carbs are, you know, part of the equation too. So, uh, you know, and I really kind of stay away from percentage recommendations. Cause like I said, it's different for each person and it's also different depending on, you know, the training season that they're in and the type of workout they're doing that day too. So it's gonna, it's gonna change, but our bodies first reach for carbs for energy. So we need an ample amount of carbs and that's just the name of the game. And I think it's, gotten a little bit fuzzy over the last couple of years because people have been taught, you know, through social media and fad diets and all this stuff that we really, you know, we're afraid of carbs and they're going to make us fat and I can't eat carbs or, or whatnot. And so we've gotten a little bit off the recommendations. And I think performance, I know performance actually um, takes a hit when we decrease our carbs, we need to increase our carbs and increase our protein. So now we're doing a lot, right? And it's really not that complicated. It's actually pretty easy, even though it sounds complicated. But to that note, also, we also need to increase our good sources of fats, because I think a lot of female athletes are a little afraid of fats, too. So when we're afraid of carbs, and we're afraid of fats, and we're not getting enough protein, then we're in general underfueling as female athletes because of diet mentality and just not being sure of how to fuel. So if we could balance each meal and snack, or even I call them mini meals, not snacks, throughout your whole day with carbs, protein, and fat, then we're going to adequately fuel our bodies. And then our performance is going to reflect what we're doing from a nutritional standpoint. Yep, and that's the ultimate goal. <laughs> Uh, I have a quick follow-up question for Jen. I know so many cyclists and runners who, mostly guys, but some women who will do fasted runs or rides. 
And personally, that's never worked for me. And I've been doing some reading that fasted training is actually much worse for women than it is for men. Have you read that too? Or could you expand on why it's not as good for women as it might be for men? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it comes down to our physiology. We Our actual nutrient needs are higher than men, and it does link back to progesterone and estrogen. We need extra caloric base just to produce our hormones and keep them thriving at, at the rate that we need them to, no matter what stage of your cycle you're in, whether you're premenopausal, peri or post, we just need more fuel. So, and I think that's misunderstood because we're always restricting, you know, or we we were always taught to restrict. So we tend not to have the best consequences when we do go into a workout fasted because we're breaking down other parts of our body. We're breaking down muscle mass. We're breaking down um, skeletal cells sometimes too, just because muscles and, and bones are connected. So we don't want to break down some amino acids for fuel when we can actually go into a workout with say carbs, protein, and fat, which are giving us an ample amount of nutrients to fuel our workouts and we'll feel much better. I think a lot of women are, are afraid to eat before working out because they think their stomach is going to get upset, but there's actually ways to tweak the, the snacks and meals that you're eating before a workout to make sure that doesn't happen. And a lot of that comes down to training. Right. So just like we train to cycle a hundred miles, that takes time. It takes a little bit of time and training to train our GI tract to take in food before a workout. So it's completely possible if you just take the steps to do that. So, um, all very good information. Um, Oh, Celine, did you have something to add? Yeah, no, I would add we, we, we talk a lot about fasted training in, um, on the podcast, my hip play, not pause and in the book, uh, next level, because in what happens in perimenopause and in menopause is that once those hormones start to decline, um, it's harder to maintain healthy cortisol levels, your stress hormone. So when you layer fasted training mm-hmm. on top of that, it's another stress. And it's, um, you know, it's inflammatory. It just causes problems. It's, it, it is much, much more of a problem for women, especially at that point. Yeah. And wouldn't you say it adds to, and well, you just said inflammation, it adds to yep. inflammation. So it actually creates another barrier for yeah. recovery. It's harder to recover if you're already inflamed because of cortisol. And now because you just fasted through a workout, now you have additional inflammation and it's harder to recover. And women perform better in a fueled state. I mean, that's really just like the research just just bears that out. It's, uh, you know, we we try to help women get around that because there's so much low energy availability among women. And that actually gets worse as they get into menopause and their body composition starts changing despite other things they're doing. So we try to really emphasize, if nothing else, please fuel around your training, right? Get your, you know, if you're car, even if you're the most carb phobic person, eat them before, during and after, like just at least do that because there's some really interesting research that's come out recently that if you do that, like if you fuel your training, you're less likely to slip into that state of low energy availability and to have all those um, cortisol responses and the stress hormones and the inflammation. And conversely, uh, I don't have the paper in front of me, but the same paper found that women who didn't, who still got mostly the calories and energy they needed, but didn't eat it at the right times. Like if they just back ended their day because they were starving, but didn't go, didn't fuel their efforts, still could have like sort of a relatively low energy availability because they haven't fueled that effort. So out of curiosity, as two high level athletes yourselves, 
What are some of your go-to pre-workout meals? Yeah. <laughs> that just depends um, what I'm doing. Yeah. I have some standard <laughs> ones. Yeah. Say it definitely depends for sure. Say you're going out but, for a brick workout. What would be your go-to morning meal before you head out? Um, yeah, definitely. Def- I have a couple different things I kind of toggle between, but that's my favorite really is Greek yogurt with some granola and either sliced, usually sliced bananas and then some kind of berry like blueberries or strawberries. And if I'm in the mood for something sweet, I'll put some honey on that too. But that's really kind of my go-to. And it's quite a large bowl. It's not a small bowl. <laughs> yeah. I'll have like a bowl of... Especially if you're going to be out yeah. there for a few hours. I'll have like a bowl of oatmeal, so similar bowl of oatmeal with some yogurt, with some nut butter, with a bunch of like, and it's the same thing. It's just like gruel. It's just, it's just pasty, th- but it, it holds me over and does the trick. Yeah. yeah love that too. Megan and I have talked about this. I think we're both uh, oatmeal with uh, nut butter or people too. Yeah. Hundred percent. You can't go wrong. <laughs> Has it. everything you need, right? Yep. Um, so I wanted to go back a little bit um, to the protein topic. Um, when there are a lot of different protein supplements and powders out there, is there anything specific that females should look for on the label when picking out a protein powder or a protein supplement? Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, we know that the protein that is the best best absorbed, has the highest absorption rate and assimilation rate is whey protein isolate. So we know that. Now, the problem is if you have a vegetarian athlete or a vegan athlete that, uh, or someone who's lactose intolerant and can't tolerate whey, then the next best would be like a vegetable-based protein, like a pea protein, or even say like a pumpkin seed protein powder. So, but, but the gold standard is whey protein isolate. Right. And I had, um, in a little bit of my research, I had looked into um, leucine mm-hmm. on the labels. Do you know if most of the um, most of the protein powders and supplements out there have that in it? Or is that something that's that female athletes should be looking for a little bit more? That's funny. I don't know if Celine has any um, thoughts on this. I think it depends on what protein powder you're looking at, whether they put it in there or not. It's definitely helpful. And the studies show You really have to look. Yeah, you have to look. And it's not on a lot. And the problem with protein powders is a lot of them will have like combinations of whey protein isolate and whey protein concentrate. And then all these vitamins and minerals that you may or may not need, probably don't need. And then all of these other, you know, you know, popular things just to market it. Right. And, And it just depends. So if you want a protein ice, a whey protein isolate powder in and of itself, I like to get a pure one that's just 100% whey protein isolate. And then if you want to add something else, say if you're making a smoothie, then do that because then you can be guaranteed that the product is high quality and that you're not just getting a product with some ingredients that you're not really sure. Maybe it's not third-party tested. Maybe there's not really enough in there to make a difference clinically. So I like to do everything separately. I know that's probably a little bit more work for athletes, but it's going to get the better results. So I always do that. But I'd be interested to see what how Celine feels about that. Yeah, no, leucine. I mean, leucine is one that Stacey Sims talks about all the time, um, you know, because in her research, women uh, tend to be more catabolic. Progesterone is a it makes us more catabolic. Women and again, as you get through that menopausal transition, Again, more catabolic because you've lost estrogen, which is anabolic. Um, so leucine is one of the best ones for shutting down that 
that process. So she she is very into leucine, but you really do. I mean, I I did a whole story for Bicycling Magazine on it, and I I have read many 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 labels, and you really do have to look. It's we're at the point now that it's gotten enough publicity, let's say, that some people are putting it on the label more clearly. It has so many grams of leucine and so many grams of you know some of those other branch chains, but you you do have to look for it. You can't just assume it's in there in any meaningful way. There's a lot of sugar in protein drinks too. And I think that that's important. Like when you're picking your protein powder, read the labels a little bit. Like if it's banana foster flavor or something or other, it it probably has a lot of stuff in it that maybe you don't need daily. Yeah. The simpler, the better. And you can flavor yeah. it up yourself because then you don't have to worry about that that kind of stuff. Celine, do you, do you know if there's a recommendation that either you or Stacy recommend for leucine? For the amount? Yeah, for like a dosage. I'm going to say three to five grams. Um, I would have to look that up to make 100% sure that that's correct, but that's the number off the top of my head that she goes with. Yeah, if I remember correctly from uh, Roy, I think it was a five grams. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to find five. Like, you know, if you can find a protein powder with three to five, that that's... Yeah. Okay, so take homes from that. Look for whey protein isolate for most female, uh, female athletes. Or if you're a vegetarian or vegan, look for a vegetable, uh, vegetable-based protein. So switching gears a little bit um, to more bone health, what we wanted to kind of expand on this a little bit more. So a lot of people don't know that women reach their peak bone mass by the time they're 30 in their upper 20s, which, I mean, the first time I heard that, I was surprised. That's, that's pretty young. Um, so are there any nutritional strategies that you would recommend for females to keep in mind as they're either um, still growing bone mass or still progressing, um, and even after that thirty that thirty year mark. Yeah, so so you're right. You know, some studies are showing that we can actually we actually stop depositing bone at at twenty five. So it's it's probably on the earlier side of that, which is kind of scary. You're right. Because we're still in at that age, we're still restricting. We're still, you know, not eating properly, not eating balance, not thinking about how many servings of dairy we're getting in. And, um, and now you have all the fads going on, like, let's not drink milk, let's have, you know, milk alternatives. So then we're decreasing the amount of calcium. So I think it comes down to an education aspect, where we really need to educate, especially female athletes, because Young female athletes, especially with all the impact that they they're experiencing on a daily basis, are actually breaking down bone, which is actually a good thing if you're consuming enough calcium, because then we can build it back up and make it stronger. But if you're not consuming enough calcium, then you're going to be breaking down that bone and weakening your bones. And we only have that window to build our bones. So from a nutritional standpoint, it's, it, you got to push the calcium. And obviously you have to do push magnesium, vitamin K, vitamin D. Those are kind of the biggies when it comes to bone health. And it's, again, it sounds complicated because I'm throwing out all these, these vitamins and minerals, but it's really, I mean, we can get them very easily if we're, if we're intaking dairy. So that's easy. If we're not taking in dairy, there are plenty of vegetable sources of those vitamins and minerals in vegetables too. So if you're doing smoothies with vegetables and either milk or say you're not doing milk and you're doing a milk alternative and increasing that amount of vegetables that you're having throughout the day, whether it be in your smoothie or later on during the day, that's how, but to how to balance your bone health. But you really, as an athlete, have to be aware of what foods have calcium and then make sure that you're getting it in, in your diet. 
Jen, if an athlete needs to take a calcium supplement, there are so many types of calcium supplements and they can be combined with magnesium, obviously D. Is there one that is better absorbed than others? Is there one that's better for women at certain ages? What do you recommend to your clients? Um, a couple of things. I always recommend food first, by the way. So it, our bodies know how to absorb vitamins and minerals through food first. So I always do that. If there is an instance where you need, you know, we find that you have low blood calcium and we need to boost things, or maybe you're traveling for three months and you know, you're not going to be getting enough, then I would separate, which happens with athletes, especially, you know, at the collegiate level, then I would do a supple, supplement and it, it matters and it doesn't. There's, there's different kind of calcium supplements. And, um, if you take, say calcium citrate, for example, has a certain absorption rate. You just need to take that maybe twice a day versus another version of calcium where you may be able to take once a day. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it comes down to just, are you able to take one in the morning or, or do you have time in your day and can you remember to take it twice in your day so that there's different absorptions? Mm -hmm. So again, it's individual, but both will do the trick. But then on top of that, I will repeat again that you really make, need to make sure that your supplement is from a company that's trustworthy and that's third-party tested because there are so many bad formulations of supplements out there. So you got to do your homework and make sure it's a good one. Right. Thank you. Yeah, Celine, you have something to add? I would, I would uh, just drive home the point here about low energy availability and relative yeah. energy deficiency in sport, which is really, really common. Um, if you are not getting your period, yeah. that is not okay. Like that your hormones are a huge right. driver of, of bone health. And, you know, when you hit menopause, let's go there, there again, you, you can lose tw up to 20% of, you know, your loss can happen in those first three to five years. Like you want those bones to be strong. Right. And if you're not getting your period, that hormonal stimulation from estrogen and progesterone, that's really important. It's really important. Um, so yeah, not, not yes. going into low energy availability. And so you have enough protein and you have enough of those nutrients that Jen talked about is, is of the utmost importance. And also multi-directional stress is important. A lot of times runners think that, that running is all you need to do because I run, I do all this high impact, but like strength training and multi and lateral movements and multi-directional stress on your bones is is very important and doing something with your upper body because a lot of women are, are not strong in their spine and not strong in their um, ribs. You know, a lot of places that, that lose, that lose bones. So doing, right. doing things in your upper body is important too. Oh, absolutely. And as cyclists, um, we know the studies on people who only ride for exercise. They've done studies on, I know that this show is about women, but elite male cyclists in their thirties, have bone density levels of 80-year-old women. So females, that means if all you're doing is riding your bike and you're 25, 30 years old, 20 years old, you're not stimulating your skeleton enough to build bone mass. You need to be doing plyometrics. Um, I like that, Celine, you hit on multidirectional stress. We know that our bones build in response to the type of stress that we put on them. They actually have stress lines that match the direction of stress they experience. Um, so yeah, thank you for hitting on that point. I want to say one more thing really quick, because yes, I'm so glad, Celine, that you said um, 
it, the absence of your period is a very big red flag. Yes. And when I work with youth athletes, I don't think we can hammer this home more uh, enough because I think in the world of disordered eating and youth athletics, it's almost like a badge of honor not to get your period sometimes. And I, I hate to say that, but it's true. A lot of runners I work with are like, you know, I don't get my period. That's awesome. I don't have to worry about it when I'm competing or traveling or away at school or, or whatever. So I think just making it really clear how dangerous it is and educating these girls, you know, that it's a risk factor, health risk factor that they really need to pay attention to is important. So I'm, I'm glad we're opening up that conversation because I feel like sometimes it's taboo to talk about that. And, um, and a lot of girls hide it that they, that they don't get their period and feel good about it because, okay, you know, I didn't get my period. That must mean my body fat's really low. Yay me. And it's, it's just not something to, to be happy about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, you know, and, and I think Celine and Stacy have been a big part of bringing this topic more into conversation, but I know when I was running track and cross country in high school 20 years ago, it was like you said, Jen, like a badge of honor, like, oh, I don't have my period. That must mean I'm really fit. Like I'm where I need to be for the season. And I mean, it certainly wasn't something we talked about with our coaches, but we talked about it with each other. But hopefully now more parents are aware, hopefully even more teenage girls are aware that not getting your period when you're an athlete is a bad thing. It's a sign that you're not getting the energy that you need. Um, and hopefully they'll feel more comfortable talking to their parents about it. Maybe not their coach, but at least their parents so that maybe they can work with a nutritionist to help get them back on track. Yeah, trying to get like, what all of you guys, what all you ladies have said. So true. There's that, oh, there's always that mindset that you talk to young athletes and they see they see the fact that they're they're not getting their period as a sign of fitness, that they're ready to compete at their top level when in actuality they're setting themselves up for a lot of difficulties down the road. And especially going back to the bone density question, you're really setting yourself up for a lot of early bone loss and not reaching that peak bone mass. We had Amelia Boone as one of our keynote speakers um, at the summit that I was telling you guys about offline, the Women's Performance Summit. And I mean, she spoke about all the stress fractures she was getting in her femurs, like not just the lower. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it might not even cause you problems down the line. If you're getting stress reactions and stress problems and injuries, you know, with your connective tissues, it's causing you problems now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it like the highest um, cause of stress fractures in runners is low energy availability? Yeah. So that's another thing I don't think that we're quite as aware of and you get a stress fracture and oh no, I got a stress fracture. I must've just trained too hard. I must've just ran too many miles and that's not it at all. But one of the, one of the reasons that we wrote Roar is that because if you know that you're going to be in this follicular phase, right? Like if you get to, if you get to know your period and you know, like this is how I will feel during this time when my hormones are relatively low. And then I'm going to go into this luteal phase in this, in the second half and maybe I will have that bloating and maybe it will be harder for me to like regulate my temperature and all that stuff. But you can then you understand and you can work with that to mitigate some of that stuff and like just be healthier overall as opposed to just losing your period and and just having all these consequences. Yeah. yeah. And listening to your body. Like I think a lot of it is just listening yeah. to your body. So, yes, 
you might get bloated a little bit. And yes, that's normal and it's okay. So maybe I should drink more water because that right. can flush some of that or that can help my, me with my temperature regulation because my temperature, body temperature right. will be higher and my blood um, plasma volume is going to be a little lower. So I, I need to hydrate beforehand. And blah, blah, blah. But it's, yeah, a, a, yeah right. hydrate. Totally. Right. Yeah. So it's not so much like, oh, this is awful. I feel terrible. I have PMS. It's more like, okay, this is what's going on. Therefore, this is what I need to do to yeah. give my body what it needs and make myself And that was my, my overriding point. Yeah. Yeah. It also helps you see patterns in your training. Like we've all had workout days where we just feel terrible and you can't figure out why. But if you start thinking about, okay, perhaps one possible reason is I'm in this phase of my cycle, then that makes you feel more in control. It makes you not feel like, oh my gosh, you know, last week I felt amazing and now this week I feel terrible and I have no idea why. The more, you know, knowledge is power, right? The more knowledge we give female athletes, the more power they have over their training and understanding of their bodies. For sure, for sure. And then you can make changes. So if it's supposed to be an interval day and you're not feeling it, yeah. it's okay to back off and do that two or three days from now, you know, and just do an easy workout. Absolutely. Go with it. I'm really glad you brought up um, drinking more in plasma volume, Jen, because I want us to move on to our next topic, which is hydration. Because of course, hydration is just as important as the nutrients we're taking in to fuel our training. So there's so many products on the market and I've probably tried all of them and some of them work great and some of them give you stomach sloshing. Some of them just make you feel like you've got a hundred pounds of water in your stomach. So from a nutritional profile standpoint, what should female athletes look for in what they're putting in their bottles? And let's say the type of athlete we're talking about is a runner or a triathlete who's going out for training that's at least an hour long. Okay. So I think the biggest message here is if you maintain optimal hydration status steadily throughout the whole week, let's say, if we're looking at a week training block, then you prob and you're going out for an hour workout, you probably don't need any electrolytes because you're getting them in food and you're maintaining your hydration. So that's first. But let me back up a little bit, because if you are an athlete that's a very heavy sweater, or if it's very hot and humid, which it's going to get here in a couple months, <laughs> I'm, I'm in Connecticut, but wherever it is, if you, you know, you have to look at your, your temperature and your humidity. If it's, if you exercise at altitude, that's another environmental factor for hydration. So you have to take those into account on top of the fact of your own sweat rate. So if you're a really heavy sweater, you know what, you probably do need to supplement with, with electrolytes in under cer certain circumstances so that you can absorb more of the water that you're drinking. And so your muscles can hold on to that water and stay hydrated. So that's kind of the theory behind everything. When it comes to products, this is kind of like a mixed bag because some people, um, there's so many products and most, uh, you know, the hydration electrolyte products, you know, started obviously with like Sports drinks, Gatorade, Powerade, those kind of things, which were not only electrolytes, and they were marketed as an electrolyte beverage, but they're also really high in simple sugars. And that can come into play. If you're an endurance athlete, you probably need some simple sugars as long as your GI tract can handle it. And as long, you know, if you're taking it in at a certain interval of time, some people 
do not do well with taking in simple sugars in a liquid format. They need solid food and just electrolytes on the side. So again, it's going to depend on what you can tolerate. My biggest recommendation and what I recommend the most is start with an electrolyte supplement that doesn't have excess sugar and then take your carbohydrates and your proteins and maybe your fat if you're taking in fat during a ride separately with whole food or maybe sports bars or something like that. So electrolyte supplements that don't have sugar, things like Noon, uh, Zim, Camelback makes one, You Can Hydrate makes one, Base Performance Salt makes one, Salt Sticks. I mean, there's a million, right? There's so many, but those are ones without sugar. Then the other ones like the sports drinks, so say like Scratch, um, Hammer, uh, what are some other ones? I can't even think of them off. Cliff, <laughs> Cytomax. Uh, yeah, Cytomax, yeah. Accelerate, you know, all yeah, those ones paid. that have simple sugars in them as needed based on, you know, what workout you're doing, what training cycle you're in, how long you're going out for. If you've eaten a decent amount of carbs and protein before your workout, you know, there's all these different factors. But like I said, you, you also need to know what your sweat rate is before you ever go down that road so that you know how much fluid you need and how many electrolytes you need along mm-hmm. with that fluid. Celine in, um, roar, um, in roar, Stacy, you and Stacy wrote about, um, the importance of looking at the osmolality of certain sports beverages and that you don't want to drink something that has higher osmolality than blood. And let's say blood is 275 to 295 milliosmoles. <laughs> um, so like which, which, out of the popular beverages out there, like some that we just named, are some better than others in terms of being less con- concentrated than our blood? And why does that even matter? Yeah, I mean, she tends to recommend a, a lower like a, a lower carb, like some carb, because some of the, some of that salt and sugar helps assist with the hydration process. But, um, you know, there are some very dense liquid nutrition products, right? That promise to give you your carbohydrates along with your hydration. And that it just doesn't, you know, some people can get away with it. Some people can do, you know, they can train themselves, but they're, you know, you, I, I think about, you know, there's some of the infinite products. There's just some products that's like 300 calories a bottle, right? And there's a lot of people playing with different formulations of carbohydrates. They have the Mortons of the world doing a hydrocell. You have different people using different kinds of starches to sort of trick the system, you know, and, and sometimes people have success with that and sometimes they don't. But the bigger, to answer your broader question, is that what the trouble you can run into with those very dense drinks is that you're going to be pulling blood or pulling water into your gut to dilute them so you can get them out. Like, you know, it's just basic osmolality is what you're, you're drawing from. If it's too concentrated here, it's not going to just go across the membranes, right? It's, you're going to have to draw water in to dilute it to get it mm-hmm. into your system. And if you draw water into your gut, bad things happen. Like, <laughs> Yes, very bad things. <laughs> bad things happen. <laughs> so um, I'm also glad you mentioned Morton. Megan and I are both big Morton fans. And, you know, I was reading about how Morton claims to work. They say that, you know, because the drink becomes a hydrogel in your gut, it encapsulates the sugar. So even though it's more concentrated, it's still able to cross over into your bloodstream in your small intestine. And I was 
looking to see if like Stacy had written anything about Morton. And I found one thing. Um, it was a post on, I think, your podcast page. But she said that the real issue is fructose and that particularly postmenopausal women do not do well with digesting fructose. So she said definitely for postmenopausal women, Morton probably isn't the best choice. Premenopausal, if it works for you, fine. Um, do you have any experience with like any of your listeners um, or friends with Morton? Yeah, I've actually I've tested it myself and I do have some people in I can I can't rely on it for a full day. Like I can't do a 140 mile gravel race on just Morton. That will not go that will not go well for me. Um that said, yeah. I can't do it with any liquid carbohydrate sources. You know, Morton Morton is one of the ones that I do find most tolerable, but I have to mix it with something else. Like I it, within the day. Like I can't just have bottle after bottle of Morton. Mm-hmm. Um and I I do think that I have become less tolerant of some of that stuff, at, you know, with with age. Um, and the menopause transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, you know, there are some people who are in my community who do do well with it. You know, we're not chest tubes. Like you don't pull the same thing in each person and the same right. results happen. So I think it's always okay to try it. But, um, yeah, fructose, fructose is definitely, uh, definitely a thing, which doesn't mean you can't eat fruit. Like a lot of people are like, Oh, I shouldn't eat fruit. It's like, no, the fiber is just, it's just like the concentrated the concentrated amount of fructose that is in a lot of things. I uh, I have a little question I wanted to ask Jen when she was talking, though, about the electrolytes, if I can quickly. I have a huge problem with stevia, which is in everything now. Like, it upsets my belly. I can't stand the taste. And it's just, it seems to be in everything. Because it, when they take out the sugar, they put in mm-hmm. stevia. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So if it upsets your stomach, I would do something more pure, like a base performance salt or even like a salt stick capsule, you're getting, you're getting a lot more sodium at one time. So you, you have to go into it a little bit more hydrated, drink water before, then take it. Then after the good thing about like the tablets is you're sipping. So say a noon tablet is like 300 milligrams of sodium and I think 40 or 60 milligrams of potassium, but you're sipping that over time because it's diluted in a 24 ounce water bottle. Right. If you take a base salt, like a serving of base salt, it's 300 in right. one serving. So you're getting right. that right away, right. which is a lot, which means you have to be hydrated going into it. And then you have to maintain your hydration afterwards. So it's just tricky. The logistics a little bit trickier, but it's not complicated. It's pretty easy. Um, so that's what I would recommend for you because then you don't have any sweeteners at all. It just it tastes, salt, tastes like yeah, salt. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to like the taste of salt. I do. But that's, yeah, that's fine. It's thirsty. <laughs> Way better than stevia. <laughs> Didn't mean to hijack your question there, Andrea. Sorry. I just like... I thought of that. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm glad you brought up stevia, actually. So I've read that stevia and some other artificial sweeteners, and I mean, I know some people say stevia is a natural sweetener, but most products that have stevia in it don't have pure stevia. It's a processed form of stevia. Um, But that artificial sweeteners disrupt your gut microbiome. Are either of you aware of any research about that? We had a woman on the p- performance, Stacy Kazinchuk, who is that's her that's her specialty is the gut microbiome, and you know it it, it as with anything, it's the amount that you use because your gut microbiome, from what she explains, is very it responds to what you're putting into it, right? So, and it's also very vulnerable during exercise. So that's I think that's the interesting part of that is that you might be you 
you know, that's why a lot of these drinks are trying to get away from anything like artificial colors or all those things because they can be, they can aggravate the system. But I don't know, Jen, do you know more about the microbiome? And I think the research right now is still a little bit mixed. I think that there's some sweeteners that we know can disrupt your microbiome, like um, right. sucralose and obviously aspartame, like those ones we know. So we really need to steer clear of those as athletes. Stevia is still actually on the safe list. But some people, just like Celine said, yeah, it really upsets her GI body. tract. And actually, it does me too. I, I don't tolerate that very well either. So you have to kind of see and, you know, trial and error, see if it's okay with you. I think the more we learn about stevia, you know, in the years to come, we'll have a, a better answer for that. Because really, the research right now is so mixed. Some say it does. Some say it doesn't. And it could even be genetic, right? Like so many of these things are in your your phenotype. Like you don't even... Like, you know, why, why do some people have like cilantro taste like soap? I mean, a lot of these things are just sort of like in our, yeah. in our DNA yeah, too. Right. So. For sure. And I know monk fruit is one that's coming up more and more recently in, um, in monk fruit sweetener. Oh yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I think we're going to, we're going to be seeing that more in the sports, um, product world. So that's another one we're going to have to start studying more to get, to get some more research on that. Right. And it's one thing to have stevia in a product that also has calories, like has carbohydrates, but it's a whole nother thing to have any artificial sweetener in a product that doesn't have calories, because of course, we know that that causes your insulin levels to spike, your body tastes sweet, and it thinks you ingested sugar, but you didn't. So any of those like, low calorie electrolyte mixes, those are really not good for athletes in particular to use, right? Um, yes and no. And again, it depends if you ate something beforehand. Yeah. So if you're eating a, a you know, pre-workout snack and then you're having one, there's your energy right. that's going to help absorb that mm -hmm. and block that. But you're, if you're eating on an empty stomach, that's going to be a problem, most likely, depending on if it's a problem for you. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, one more question about hydration, and then we're going to move on to another topic. But what is the deal with prehydration products, like the really high sodium drinks? Yeah, and I love them. I love Osmo Preload. I'm a big fan. Um, but yeah. for listeners who maybe don't know what prehydration is, could you both explain um, how it works and why someone might want to use it? Since I'm a fan, I'll just talk about why I'm a fan, and then Jen can talk. About it. No. Yeah, um, go for it. You know, this is this is where this is where I learned. Like when I was riding Roar with Stacy, I went out and you know spent time doing hill repeats and peeing on your analysis sticks and doing all kinds of stuff with her. But um, when you talk about the menstrual cycle, particularly in that luteal phase where the you know you hit some of the high hormones and the blood plasma is shifting, you know your blood plasma can shift by eight percent. And it can it, it can get just make it really hard for you to thermoregulate. And I ran I was running into that a lot, especially summertime, hot mountain bike stage races and that kind of thing. And I found that those preload products were a godsend for me. I would drink them ice cold before an event and I was it just helped me manage my temperature might be able to sweat. You know, they just all that they are as they sound. They just raise your your blood volume because they're, they're um, so high in sodium. Yeah. I've actually never tried them, but I think it's, it's the next kind of phase of sodium loading, which is what we used to do, you know, 
10, 15 years ago, which is is still very, very effective because when you're raising your blood sodium level, you're going to actually increase the absorption of water into your muscles and maintain hydration, which is extremely important. Just like you said, Celine, in certain phases of your, of your cycle. So, but I think it's important actually at all phases of your cycle, especially if you're someone who's a heavy sweater or has a hard time in hot and humid yeah, environments. Yeah. Before so, a really hot so yeah, race. I'm interested to try them now. That Anytime. You're yeah. Yeah. Yeah, hot and humid races. Oh, yeah. The preload products are a godsend before any hot races or even the night before a hard training session. Okay. So we're going to dive into the next topic, which is on specifically training and performance. So one thing um, that I found very interesting, going back to like the uh, fluctuations in hormones during the menstrual cycle, that there's a two-week span that, quote-unquote, men or women are most like men. <laughs> I remember reading that in Roar and being like, interesting. It's not my, yeah, it's not my favorite phraseology, <laughs> but yes. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. But I also wanted to go back to what we had talked about earlier with uh, strength training um, for female athletes. Um, so there's different kinds of strength training, right? It's either um, uh, low load, high repetition or high load, low repetition. Um, would you be able to expand upon which one women would more uh, benefit from? I am very deep into this menopausal space right now, as you might have heard, because I've just helped her write the second book and do this podcast for that population specifically. So as I mentioned, estrogen is anabolic. Estrogen also helps with contractile strength. There, you know, there's a lot to it. Um, as it goes, you know, you, you lose your satellite cells, like your muscle stem cells that help you maintain and make muscle. And it's just, Nothing stimulates those quite as well as lifting heavy. You know, heavy strength training is a, is really the best way to stimulate those. There's, there's some good research showing that. Uh, so for, especially for a 40 plus population, I would go with like, you know, five times five reps to really stimulate that because they just don't have those hormones that were doing that job. So you kind of have to pick up that, that piece and you will not get bulky. It makes you really strong. That's, I'm glad you brought that up because I think a lot of women are afraid of that, that they're going to get bulky if they lift heavy, um, which I think is something. Yeah, but if you, it's, it's funny that they say that because if you do a lot of that moderate lifting, honestly, like the, you know, three sets of eight to 12 reps, that's a lot of hypertrophy lifting, you know, that doesn't give you that same stimulation of strength, but just get, it does give it like the, I, we got trapped in this, <laughs> this uh, cosmopolitan sort of kind of, you know what I mean? Like a conversation that hasn't left. So yeah, yeah. Same thing as a diet mentality, for sure. It's, it's, still, in, <laughs> yeah. it's still out there. The take home so, message is don't rely on cosmopolitan for any of your athletic training information. Unless Celine or Jen are writing an article for it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, I think it's important too, when you're talking about strength training and I totally agree with you, Celine, especially, you know, in our menopause transition is what you said, which I love that phrase. I'm going to steal that from you. Do it. Um, but, <laughs> even in like even in the younger or just from a training perspective and a periodization perspective you really have to it ha your strength training has to reflect the cycle you're in in your training so if you're say racing for a right. summer ironman you know this you have your strength phase in the winter and then you're you know you're building and then you're recovering and then you're going to actually pull back a little bit before your race 
because your your volume of aerobic training is so high. Mm-hmm. So you have to take that into account as well. But even as a menopausal athlete, you can still do that and lift heavy and just balance it based on your training schedule. 100%. 100%. So also you mentioned um, aerobic training. What about anaerobic training? Do you recommend more frequent anaerobic training versus like um, like premenopause? It goes back to that cortisol piece again, like staying in that sort of gray zone, that no man's land training zone is a little more can be can be a little more stressful on the body than like hitting those high intensities that you kind of lose anyway, you know, hit those high intensities and then more it's more it becomes more polarized like we start recommending more polarized kind of training for women after 40 in the menopause transition because it's just like you want the you don't want to lose that top end you want to stimulate that top end and it actually helps sort of like take down the stress as opposed to sort of always being in that sort of hard situation that is not as productive at that point so yes sprint interval training actually is really great yeah, and I had read an article, um, uh, it was probably like close to a year ago or so, but talking about that like black hole of moderate training where a lot of athletes get stuck in. Like if you're kind of going... Of every age. I don't know, <laughs> right. I don't think that ever changes. <laughs> but if you're going like 70% every day, you're never going to be able to hit... <laughs> Just yeah, kind of hard. You're never going to get Just... that 100%. <laughs> Right. right. And there's that 80 20 pr- principle, right? Where 80% of the time it should be easy recovery, aerobic, right? right. Low zone, low, low heart yeah. rate zone, and 20% should be high intensity. Yes. And that's where you get your maximum benefits. Unfortunately, most of us kind of sit in between there somewhere because it's, it's easy. Because it's fun. It's, it's more fun. Cardio junkie. Like, you just <laughs> yeah. go sort of hard. Yeah. Right. I speak from experience. <laughs> we all do. I think we're all probably guilty of that. Yes. <laughs> um, so going off um, recovery, now that we're talking about that, I feel like in training, um, people get some people get this idea of like recovery days aren't as important as they truly are. That's where you actually make all the adaptations from your training. Would you be able to expand on that? The importance of those recovery days, just so those people that try to avoid those days off, why should they take them? Well, that's how training works. Look how how many things we're afraid of. We're we're afraid of carbs. We're afraid of fat. We're afraid to rest. (laughs) Like we're afraid of so many things. Um, Yeah. There's, there's nothing more important than rest when it comes to athletic performance. You're just not going to get better unless you're taking rest days and like really effective rest days. True rest days. Where you're, you're, yeah, true rest days where you're, you know, you're not doing anything and maybe you're getting a little massage or maybe you're taking a nap. You're increasing your nutrients because you're recovering during the day and your body needs nutrients to recover. You have to respect the recovery or you're never going to improve the way you can. Because you're physically, I mean, that's how training works. You you break down and then build back up. But you can't, you can't build back up unless you take that time to, like, literally take off and let your body repair, rejuvenate, restock your stores, muscle proteins, and all that stuff happens. That's when – and everybody knows it. Everybody knows that when they take the true rest day and the stairs disappear and all of a sudden they feel like they're bouncing around, like, <laughs> you've recovered. Yeah, yeah. It's a miracle. Yeah, right? <laughs> Imagine. Yeah. Right, and that actually <laughs> makes so much sense. And yet we don't do it. <laughs> the hardest part is recovering. Um, but that actually brings us into our fourth topic, which is recovery. Um, so I'm going to let Andrea take the, take the lead here with some more questions. 
Yeah, you guys are providing perfect segues into our topics. Thank you. So, you know, we've already talked about nutrition during exercise, but recovery nutrition after exercise is just as important, if not more important. So can you both talk a little bit about what people mean when they talk about a recovery window and what female athletes should be doing during that recovery window? Yeah, for sure. So um, I always say like you're either preparing for a workout or recovering from a workout because your recovery is also setting you up for success for your next workout. So you really have to, it's like a cycle kind of. So it's the same really principle as as properly fueling your body going into a workout. Your body, so we work out really hard. Say we're doing an interval workout. You break down muscle mass. You've depleted your carbohydrate stores. So you actually need to replenish all of that. So you need, again, you need protein, carbohydrates, and fat. You need protein because your muscles need, your muscle cells need to repair. You need carbohydrate because like I said, you've depleted all your glycogen stores, glucose and glycogen stores. And then you need good sources of fat, hopefully omega-3 fats or healthy fats, because that's going to help naturally decrease inflammation that you've caused during that workout. The recovery window is interesting, and I'll be interested to see what Celine thinks about this because there's mixed research out there. You know, we've heard, oh, take something in within 15 minutes, and then we've heard, oh, you get an hour or so. I think the biggest take home here is just to plan a recovery mini meal afterwards. Just make sure it's on your schedule. Make sure you bring something with you if you're not going straight home so that you have it. I don't know that the timing of it really matters as much as we used to think it does, it did. But what I do know is after you work out, you still have an increased blood flow supply to your muscles, right? So if we're going to eat something, when that blood flow is still increased, then the nutrients are going to get delivered to your muscles more efficiently than it, they would if you waited three hours. That's really the take home there. The timing really, there's a window for it. And now the research is showing from 15 to 60 minutes. So it, that's a big window, right? But I think so I tell my athletes, like, if you're feeling a little bit hungry, start eating something. It's your body sending you a single that signal that you need something. If you're not really hungry until 30 minutes after your workout, that's okay. I don't want to force feed you, but just know that you still have to take something in mm-hmm. and count that as one of your meals for the day. Yeah. I, yeah, I would you. echo that. I think, um, you know, when we talk to, to people, it's like, it also depends when you're talking to triathletes, often they're doing two a days, you know, and I think it becomes a little more important when you have that, when you have that. And Stacy, you know, has sort of aired on to like trying to get, and, and most importantly, uh, getting some of that protein in right away. Like she's, she hammers that a little bit more, especially again, going into that menopausal space, but even like in that back half of your, um, your menstrual cycle when progesterone might be higher. Um, you know, you're, you just, you're just more catabolic and you, you want to shut down that process as quickly as you can. Like, so even if you just get a little protein in, like I sometimes just even have a hard boiled egg. Like I have a bunch of hard boiled eggs in my fridge and that is something I can just pop in and just like start some of that process as opposed to like not having anything. But again, I, I don't think that you need to like, like you said, get really insane about it, but having, Having some protein quickly really does help with your muscle protein synthesis. And I can tell you, like, I really at this point now, I'm 53, I definitely notice it. Like, if I'm good and I, like, have a hard workout and I and I get that protein drink in me quickly, I do feel like it. I feel better. Yeah. And it decreases the amount of soreness you feel later on, Total- too. Totally. Yeah. 
you know, and that you can feel the soreness, the achiness, you can feel that too. Yeah. I always find like I use, um, Ultragen right after I work out and that just, it takes away the room for error of, okay, I finished my workout. Now I don't really feel like eating food. So now it might be an hour before I feel like having food, but I really should have taken something in. So you just pound that drink right when you're done. And then that buys you time to actually feel like you're ready to eat eat real food. Yeah. And it keeps me from getting into that. I need another arm to eat more food phase. Do you know what I mean? Like Uh like once the appetite (laughs) does come back, you're like, I wish Uh I could just shovel more. Like it's, it cuts that off. Yeah. 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 Well, that's funny that you said that because you're right. When you exercise and you're burning all your your glucose, right? And you're left with low blood sugar. So at the end of your workout, that's another issue. Besides just recovery, if your blood sugar is really low and you wait too long to eat a recovery snack, it's going to dip lower. And then you're so far behind the eight ball that you can never catch up. That's why you're so hungry. (laughs) You just can't. You're like a bottomless pit. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another feeling you want to avoid. But, um, but I like the fact that you are taking in your recovery fuel as liquid. That's another good point to hammer home because you're also taking care of hydration. Right. So post-exercise yeah. location, which is another topic when we talk about recovery. I know we talked about food, but hydration is really key too. So that's killing two birds with one stone. So I actually like that strategy. It's good. One more question about what to take after exercise. You know, again, there's so many products, right? And some of them advertise that they have antioxidants that will help reduce, you know, soreness and inflammation. But we know that those actually blunt the effects of our workout. So can you guys talk about why we really want to avoid antioxidants in the few hours after working out? It's it's interesting because I was in a meeting at Power Bar when they decided to take them out of their products, you know, mm-hmm. because the research wow. was showing that it... you. Imagine this, that your body has a process that you don't want to like interfere with, you know, and the inflammatory process is part of like, you make your own antioxidants, like it's a whole thing, your body is doing a lot of things. And if you start putting those in there, you you short circuit that natural process, and you actually blunt some of those gains. I mean, they I, I literally was in that that board meeting where they were like, yeah, we've removed the vitamin E and the vitamin C, like all the stuff that they had in their mm-hmm. products thinking they wow. were doing athletes a yeah. favor. Wow. Yeah. Such a good point. I mean, yes, we need antioxidants and that's where it comes back to food first. Food, yeah. So you're probably getting some antioxidants in your recovery meal, which will help a heck of a lot better than any synthetic antioxidants that you get in a bar or a pill or powder. So that's key. And it comes back to like the Advil thing, you know, like now we're shying away from the massive amounts. Look at how much Advil use was, you know, in our world 20 years ago, we used to pop it, you know, during marathons. And now, you know, no, now we have a better understanding of your body is, is pretty awesome at doing what it needs to do. So let's just let it do that and stop interfering with the process. Yes. hundred yeah. percent. Um, so much ibuprofen people were taking. Oh, so gosh. I raised yeah. for the guy that crushed it in his bottles. I was like, what are you doing? Oh, oh gosh. Drinking Ew. crushed. I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God. It was horrible. Well, now was we, horrible. Know. <laughs> we know that um, Advil and Aleve actually increase our gut permeability. So the actual that's worst great. time to take it is before exercise. Like or that's during. a recipe for, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, we did a lot of, I'm, I'm speaking from personal experience, a lot of dumb things when we were younger. A lot of dumb, yep. dumb things. Just dumb like things. baggies, baggies of Advil yep. taped to your bike. Yep. Like, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> so along the topic of recovery, you know, we touched a little bit on massage. And of course, there we know that there are so many benefits to massage and massage can help us recover from hard efforts or long training weeks. But one topic I wanted to talk about since we're specifically talking about women's training and nutrition is cold immersion. So there have been articles right and left, it seems like lately about how cold immersion does not work. Um, so no one needs to do ice baths anymore. So but I've also read that that's not necessarily the case for women because we have a different um, blood flow response immediately after exercise than men do. So, um, Celine, would you like to touch on that? Um, is cold immersion a good thing for women to do? I was just writing about this for Dr. Stacy Sims. Oh, <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> yeah. Um, and actually, not, not as like, the ice bath thing, like cool water is better because mm-hmm. women actually sh- start shivering at a higher temperature. Um, but yes, the, we don't shunt our blood away from the skin and back into central circulation as quickly and that some of the studies are finding. So it can be helpful for women to get that blood flow back into their central circulation mm-hmm. to do, to do a cold, cool, cool, but you don't have to by any means like jump into an ice, um, an ice bath. Yeah, the study the studies on ice baths and recovery are kind of equivocal. I don't know if you've seen other things, Jen, for for that. I mean, there, there's, there's yeah, I have benefits maybe for other things like endorphins. Like, there's a lot of interesting research on cold shock and heat shock proteins. But like, when you're just talking, like I ran a marathon, like it feels good on your legs and getting some of that back into central circulation. But you don't have to torture yourself with getting into a bath of ice. That would be my take home. What do you think, Jen? Yeah, I'm so torn over this topic. And I've taken a deep dive into this like in the last couple months, because I've read everything from like the 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 rice rest ice compression um, elevation, the man who actually came up with that back in, I don't know, the 40s or whatever it was, said, he's sorry, he's wrong, wrong." (laughs) you know, and then I'm like, okay, so this is what kind of started my whole path. But then I've actually even, I talked to an orthopedic surgeon who's written papers on ice and he says, no, ice is good. It actually helps decrease inflammation. And then you have scientists that are saying, no, (laughs) kind of like what we're saying about the Advil, let your body do what it needs to do and don't interfere with that process. So I am so torn because the, the research seems to be, you know, just total opposite ends. It is of a lot. The spectrum. Is, yeah, it is a lot. Although over. That's... the research on mental, yeah, the um, like the research pause. on mental toughness <laughs> and and ice baths actually is fascinating. Yeah, oh, like from a mental toughness standpoint, I think it's actually like the Wim Hof really method. Like get, now yeah, you're getting into yeah. Wim Hof, <laughs> the whole thing. But I do think, like, I mean, I when when I when I'm faced with something like that, I'm like intuitively, what what am I? Like it feels good to submerge in cool water, right? It doesn't feel good to like, to like kill yourself, but like after a nice hard mountain bike race, man, putting my legs in a little bit of cool water just feels amazing. So that's, so then I go yeah. with that, right? Like if it is feeling like so that is listening to your body, right? Totally. Like that this is, but, but when you're talking about rice and stuff, I've always thought that too. Like sometimes it feels like you want to like get some of that inflammation down, but sometimes that ice, is counterproductive. You want more mobility and then right. you want some heat. 
But I think if you tune in, then yeah. you can you can figure that out for yourself. Yeah, I know. It's interesting. I think the jury's still out on that whole yeah. thing from a research process. So it's, it's, it's it probably just depends. to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, maybe. But you know, to that point, like sitting in a hot bath feels really good after a long bike ride too. So then what do we do? <laughs> Go back know. and forth. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, we'll have to do another podcast episode on that when we get yeah, more research. Yeah, we'll, we'll go to a spa and try it out. That's a, okay. that's a great idea. We can experiment yeah. with yeah. all of the, <laughs> the recovery methods. <laughs> so, you know, I think when we as athletes talk about recovery, one thing that we don't talk about a lot, and it's so important, is sleep. So for women... And depending where you're at in, you know, premenopausal in the transition or post, there are different ways to promote better sleep habits. Um, but what would you, Celine, since you're with your uh, podcast and all of the the writing that you've been doing on this topic, what would you recommend for women to help improve their sleep quality? You know, one of the biggest things is that. It's kind of surprised me, but I had, I've, I've talked to many people and I had a couple experts on the show. It's that cortisol piece again. I mean, women have sleep disruptions during the transition because of a lot of things. I mean, you, if you're having hot flashes and night sweats and that's super disruptive, then you should really pursue whether it be a hormone therapy or something to, to get that under control because it is super disruptive, you know, but if it's a lot of it is anxiety, that rising anxiety piece. And mindfulness and taking moments during the day to do mindfulness and to do breathing and to to get yourself settled down throughout the day actually helps your evening settling down because you've trained your body like that it can that it can come down sort of like you train anything. Right. And and for a lot of women, the the first time that they let their mind settle down is when their head hits the pillow and it's not doing that. It's like, hey, we got stuff to talk no. about, you know, uh-huh. and then it's again at two in the morning, like we've got stuff to work through. So it's like working on that piece is is really is really important. And mm-hmm. then, you know, I mean, there are some things, you know, Stacey's a huge fan of the, the tart cherry juice or anything that sort of can manipulate that melatonin because it, mm-hmm. that does become more difficult too with with age and with uh, with the transition. But but the stress piece is huge. It's a really big thing and it's underappreciated like taking those moments to to calm your mind and to teach your your mind how to calm. You know, that's oh, that's trainable. Yeah, and you know, this is kind of a aside, but we don't think about life stress the same way we think about our training, but we really should. Unless we're professional athletes and even if you are, you don't live in a cave, you still interact with other people and have other stressors. So if you're an athlete who is training for a marathon, but at the same time you moved or you changed jobs or work is really stressful or your kids are, you know, being schooled from home because of a pandemic, all of that stress adds into the miles you're running or the miles you're biking. And we should take that into account when planning our training load. I don't think enough coaches do that. And I definitely think athletes don't, you know, kind of give themselves not credit, but like give themselves a break for when they're going through a stressful time in their life. Maybe now isn't the time to try to up your mileage or to, 
you know, train for an Ironman. Wait until life calms down a little bit before you add in a major stressor like that. Um, but going back to sleep, Jen, you know, Celine mentioned tart cherry juice. Is there anything like that that you recommend to your clients to help improve sleep quality? Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to eating enough. So a lot of sometimes some athletes are so hungry in the middle of the night that that's waking them up yeah. and it's because of low energy availability. Mm-hmm. So if we're eating consistently throughout the whole day and regulating your blood sugar throughout the whole day, you can actually set yourself up for for a deeper sleep. And we know that during when we sleep is when growth hormone is released. And then that's doing all the recovery repair work in our body. So we need to get into that deep sleep. So again, balancing your meals throughout the day and avoiding that I'm going to eat like a bird for, or I'm going to go into my workout fasted, right? Then eat like a bird afterwards because I'm in a rush or I'm not hungry. And then have like three dinners because we're so hungry (laughs) and then go to bed. That's That's not good either. (laughs) No, your GI system's all slow and then you're never going to get into that deep sleep as if you would, if you really fueled your day, your busiest part of your day really, really well. And then have a little, this is the other thing women are scared of. They're scared of like eating after six or eating after seven. Like there should be no time rules. It's just, it's what your body needs when it needs it and move on with your day. So a lot of times I recommend maybe having a yogurt before bed, little calcium protein, calcium boost before bed, or a higher, another higher protein snack, even if it's like, you know, maybe rice and beans or half a chicken sandwich that's left over from earlier in the day or whatever, just something to kind of calm your system down, mm-hmm. to boost serotonin in your brain, and then you can have a deeper sleep. And again, just eating enough because I think so much of our sleep disturbances are we just didn't feel ourselves yes. properly during the day. Yeah, that's great. Um, uh, one question about eating before bed, Megan and I were talking about this, that something that's really helped both of us in the past few years is having our night protein. Um, so what's the benefit of that? Like, I know why, but please tell our listeners why people might want to do that. Yeah, for sure. So again, growth hormone is going to be at the highest level of efficiency when we're sleeping, right? Mm -hmm. That's when it gets that's when it goes to work. So you're the, one of the major jobs of growth hormone is repairing muscle cells. So your amino acids. So if you're going to have a high protein snack before bed, it's actually going to go in, you know, pass through your GI tract, absorb through your small intestines into your bloodstream, break down into amino acids, and then it's going to be pulled into your muscles to help that repair. That's, you want that, that like power couple of growth hormone and, and amino acids overnight in that deep sleep. And then you're going to wake up feeling like a million bucks. That's really the purpose of it. I am forever now going to think about the power couple of protein <laughs> and growth hormone going down the aisle as I go to bed. As you sleep. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Jen. You can tell I work with youth athletes. I keep it very simple. <laughs> Love it. Well, thank you so much for all of your very insightful comments on many, many topics. Um, I think Megan has one more question for both of you to kind of wrap up our podcast. One final question. Um, What is the most common mistake that you see from female athletes? Not eating enough. I mean, that's just straight up, just not fueling themselves. It's across the board, every phase of life. Yeah. 
I'm going to be so boring and totally agree with her because it's just, it is 99% of the time uh, an issue Yeah, for athletes. Just not eating enough and being afraid and maybe not knowing. This is another one. So I'll change my answer. So not eating enough and not knowing what to eat. So I think a lot of females just don't know what to eat. So they eat the same thing they've always been taught to eat, like a salad, you know, or a rice, a rice cake, Ugh. which drives me nuts. And, um, <laughs> you know, just like diet foods and not really knowing, okay, I need protein. What is protein? I need carbs. What are the best carbs? I need fats. What are the healthiest form? You know, a lot of athletes come to me and say, I just don't know what to eat. Therefore they're not eating enough. That's a great take home message. If you think you're eating enough, Chances are, you're probably not. Maybe reach out to a dietitian, <laughs> nutritionist, at least get an evaluation, see what you can be adding, what you're missing. Um, we went over a lot of very helpful information for all of female athletes out there. Um, Jen, Celine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. Thank you. You guys are awesome. All right. And that is the entire episode that we have for you all today. As always, if you have people that you want us to bring on the the podcast, if there are questions that we didn't ask these two um, that you would like us to ask, please reach out to us and we'll see what we can do. Maybe we can convince them to come on the show again and to answer some more specific questions and dive into some of these topics at another level of depth. Uh, As always, if you want to continue to follow what we're doing, you can subscribe on YouTube if you're watching there or subscribe to the podcast and also leave a review. It helps us grow, but then you can check us out on Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter, LinkedIn, and what's Bach's favorite lately? I think he has a TikTok going. Yeah, I think we were on TikTok too, so check that out. Anyway, we'll see you all next time.